Thanks, Helen and Harry. Um, good morning, everyone. My name is Lee. I'm the Youth and Young Adults Minister here at church. Um, I'd love you to keep your Bibles open. That was a pretty intense reading. Um, I don't know if you're kind of following along. There's some big things in there. So I don't think I'm going to cover it all. Um, definitely not going to cover it all. So I encourage you to ask questions afterwards to one another, talk about it with one another. You know, us ministers here at church aren't the only enlightened ones who can understand God's word. So let's encourage one another. But I'm going to pray before we get into it. Heavenly Father, do thank you for your word. Um, and even for bits like this, which are, um, I don't know, confronting. There's a lot in there. And yeah, we ask now that your spirit would powerfully work um, through um, the words that you've helped me prepare. Um, and in our hearts as we listen um, and afterwards as we talk, um, that your word would come to life um, in our hearts. And it'll be something that we adore and love and want to obey and follow um, this week and, and for the rest of our lives. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, I was walking home from school the other day with my oldest, Dustin, and there's there some awards or something given out at school this week. And so he was talking about their whole merit system. And he was explaining that if you get five, you correct me if I'm wrong, but five strive tokens, you get a merit award. If you get 10 merit awards, you get a bronze award. I don't know how many bronze awards. Anyway, there's a lot of awards. I think it goes from like bronze, silver, gold. Is there diamond? Is that a thing? No diamond? Okay, I was making that one up. Um, anyway, we're talking and then he asked me, like, how many awards did you get at school, Dad? And um, I was probably a little bit more familiar with the punishment system at school. Um, I think I went through all the levels there. Uh but, and, and my kids know, I've told them that I wasn't the best behaved kid at school, so I've been pretty honest with them. But I also tried to explain that, you know, back in my day, they weren't as readily given out, there wasn't layers, it was just a, a merit award here and there. And I got a couple, you know, did my bit. Anyway, but it made me think, it's so hard to respond appropriately to good or bad behaviour, right? Uh, we don't want to overpraise children or, or people or underpraise. We don't want to overpunish or underpunish. I can think of countless times as a parent where I'm like, I've I've got that wrong. That that punishment, that praise, I got that wrong. Um, even moments where I've had to say to my kids, look, that was way too harsh, or actually you did something pretty bad and I didn't even like acknowledge that it was bad. Like it's bad and we have to talk about it. There's been many times where I just haven't got it right. It's so hard to get it right. Um, if you think you've got it right, let me know because <laughs> I'm struggling. Um, even in history and even in our, in our modern society, in our modern legal system, there's so many cases where the punishment just doesn't fit the crime. And maybe you're wondering the same thing as we read through this account of the golden calf. Was God too harsh with his people? Or maybe you're thinking, was God too quick to to relent on what he said he would do? Um, maybe you thought God was weak. Maybe you thought he should have been more harsh. Uh, or maybe not. Anyway, as Tom has already said, Moses was up the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights getting instructions from God uh, about the tabernacle. This mobile temple where God would be with his people. 
And this has been the goal. This has been the biggest thing in the book of Exodus, the highest priority. God has saved his people from Egypt. He's brought them to himself and he wants to dwell with them. All these instructions about the tabernacle, there's lots of chapters and then they carry them out afterwards. It's about God dwelling with his people. He wants to be with his people. But at some point in these 40 days, God's people do something shocking. They make this golden statue of a young bull and worship it as the God who brought them out of slavery in Egypt. Isn't that just a huge slap in the face? After everything God had done for them, they'd seen the plagues that he sent on Egypt. They, they went through the Red Sea that split in two. Food and water appeared out of nowhere in the desert. And they've seen God's awesome presence engulf this mountain in lightning and fire. And Aaron and 70 of the other elders, the people leading this community, they ate and drank in God's presence. Well, is that not enough? And a, a few weeks in, they're worshipping a statue and thanking it for saving them from Egypt. So, yeah, what, what they're doing, I think, is equivalent to a pea plater taking their parents' brand new car to the gravelly car park down the road and doing donuts in it. Actually, it's much worse than that. This is a relationship. God wants a relationship with his people. God has, has made a way, and they've promised to be faithful. And so this is like cheating on your spouse a week into your marriage. While one is setting up the home, decorating, connecting the internet, and making the bed, the other is in bed with someone else. And in the Bible, idolatry, worshipping other gods, replacing God, is often called adultery. It's a confronting picture of our sin, of their sin. And so today's talk, I want to answer the question, how does God respond to their idolatry? How does God respond to our idolatry? The first thing is anger. God gets angry. Um, If God's people can't be faithful to God a few weeks into their relationship with him, how is this going to work? Look at verse 7. It's coming up on the screen as well. Uh, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. Can you see it there? God is done with his people. He doesn't even say my people. He calls them your people. Moses, these are your people. I am done. Back in chapter 20, um, Ten Commandments area, God said, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God is a jealous God. We often see jealousy as a negative thing, and for a lot of the time it is for us, but jealousy is appropriate in the most intimate of relationships. You know, it'd be weird if I didn't care that my children called Anton dad and thanked Anton for raising them and teaching them how to walk and ride a bike and feeding them and caring for them 
when they were sick. If I didn't get jealous about that, that'd be weird. God calls all of us into an intimate relationship with him. He sent his own son to die for us so that we could call him father. And so when we worship money, when we find our worth in our home, when we pat ourselves on the back for the life we've made for ourselves, that angers God. God is a jealous God. Because in our hearts, those things have taken his place. So God says to Moses in verse 10, Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. That's pretty heavy. But Moses doesn't leave God alone. And God responds with mercy. Moses reminds God that they're his people. God, they are your people. People he saved, people he has made promises to, people he wants to dwell with people he wants to bless the world through. And so he begs God to relent. And in verse 14, the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. What is going on here? Like if Moses hadn't prayed, hadn't reminded God, hey God, remember the promises and and how he'd bound his reputation to his people, You know, would God have destroyed them? Well, we don't know. But I think what is happening here is that through this exchange with Moses, through his word here to us, we're confronted with three things about God's mercy. The first thing is that mercy suspends punishment. It doesn't erase it. Uh, There's a few times in this passage where God promises punishment, and in this moment, the one we've just heard about, he relents. He doesn't completely destroy them. But in verses 27 to 28, not on the screen, so you can look down in your Bibles, verses 27 to 28, um, 3,000 people are punished, are killed, for remaining against God, for standing against God. That's not all of them, there's a lot of people, so a small number are still punished. And in verse 35, God strikes people with a plague. There is punishment here, but punishment seems to be held back. Um, If God didn't punish sin, if you think about it, well, we might be happy or unhappy depending on where we sit and how we see the situation, Um, but God wouldn't be just. If God didn't punish sin, God wouldn't be just. Oh, sorry. Romans 3.25 makes this nice and clear. Uh, It says that God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. When God doesn't punish in the Old Testament, when God doesn't punish now for our sin, it's not like he's just, it just disappears. It doesn't. God is just, and all that leftover punishment, which is a lot, is heaped onto Jesus, is poured on Jesus. God punishes sin, but he shows mercy to sinners by punishing his innocent son. That's the first thing we learn about mercy. The second thing is that mercy is where this story is headed. 
Um, we're at the beginning. We're in Exodus, second book of the Bible. Um, so we're learning a lot about God. God's people are learning a lot about God. Mercy is where it's headed. Um, in chapter 33, verse 11, you can also look down at that. We're told that Moses and God spoke as friends. Crazy verse. I'd love to spend more time on that, but anyway. And in verse 33, sorry, chapter 33, verse 18, Moses asks to see God's glory, the fullness of who God is. Now, you'd think Moses had seen it all. Like, of all we've read about Moses' encounters with God, but he knows there's so much more to God. And what God tells him in verse 9 is that he, verse 19, sorry, is that he is good, compassionate and merciful. The fullness of the glory of God is his goodness, his kindness, his mercy. Mercy is where this whole story is headed. And John 1.14 says, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Thirdly, mercy is to be sought. Um, In chapter 32, verse 11, Moses sought God's favor. The one who knew God best at this point, he knew God's mercy was greater than his anger. He knew that. Um, We have been offered mercy at the cross. And if you haven't sought that out for yourself, then I urge you to do so. If you're someone who is sitting here who hasn't received God's mercy, God is a merciful God. He is eager to show you mercy. If you've received God's mercy, if you know that God is a merciful God, then plead for it for others. Now, I know that for many of us have been pleading for people, for loved ones, for many years, and they still haven't embraced Jesus. And this is so difficult. But I need to hear this. I need to be reminded of this, and so do you. We need to keep crying out to God. God is a merciful God. Seek his mercy. Look how Moses pleads in chapter 32, uh, verses 31 to 32. Oh, what great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, wait for it, then blot me out of the book you have written. Paul actually says a very similar thing in Romans 9. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. Have you ever had that thought? Would you trade your salvation? For someone else, for others? Well, we can't. Jesus traded his life, and that's on the table for everyone. But still, do we share that same anguish? And do we cry out for mercy with that depth of anguish for those who don't know Jesus? 
How does God respond to our idolatry? It makes him angry, but his mercy triumphs over his anger. Thirdly, um, the other response we see is that God withdraws. At the beginning of chapter 33, we see the people continuing God's promises. After him showing them mercy, they are heading towards the promised land as God's people. But in verse 3, look down in your Bibles, it says, But I will not go with you. The reality is that our idolatry separates us from God. And that is the greatest punishment, isn't it? Being separated from God. You know, what we experience now in this life, see it as like a partial separation from God. When we see suffering and pain in our lives and in this world, it should remind us that this is what life without God looks like. But an eternity completely without God awaits those who don't accept God's love and mercy in Jesus. In chapter 33, verse 4, the Israelites were distressed by this. Distressed at the thought of God not being with them on their journey. How much more should we be distressed at the thought of an eternity without God? It distressed Jesus. Remember the night before he died, in the garden, before his crucifixion, he was distressed to the point of death. Not because of the physical pain, but the pain of being separated from his father and experiencing all that anger on the cross. If God's absence distressed Jesus, then it should distress us. Even for those of us who are God's children, who call us ourselves Christian, being distant from God should distress us. You can be a Christian and be far from God. You can not spend much time with him, not give him much thought. You have put your trust in Jesus. You are saved. You're a Christian. But it should bother us that we're not close to him, that we don't have a close relationship with him. And all throughout the Psalms, what causes the psalmist the greatest distress is being far from God. They long to be with him. And for us as Christians, having a distant relationship with God, that should bother us. And you know what? Idolatry pushes God away. There's nothing wrong with money, a home, a hobby, or looking your best. But when those things replace God, well, we've replaced God. When we look to those things for our worth and value and security, we rob ourselves of the deeper worth and value and security we can experience with God. And so how do we know How do we know if something in our life has become an idol and has replaced God? And it's not just a good thing in our life. We're just enjoying it. That's fine. Enjoy things with gratitude. Sure. But how do we know it hasn't crossed a line and replaced God? Well, two things. It might be that thing that your mind effortlessly goes to 
when you just don't have anything else to think about. When you're drifting off at night or at work in front of the computer, you know, who or what do you find yourself thinking about more than anything else? Where does your mind effortlessly go to? Um, If I just had this in my life, I I would be happy. I have Jesus, but... But life would be complete if this thing happened, if this change happened. We're fooling ourselves when we think like that. Honestly, for me, recently, the idea of owning a home has, I think, what my mind has often drifted to. I think if I had a bigger, better, newer home with a beautiful yard, I love just like a crisp lawn... Um, talking about my idols here. Anyway, I shouldn't joke about it. But I, I do. I honestly think I would be happy. Like, I think in my mind, I would be happier. I have Jesus, but that is what's going to complete me and make me happier. Isn't that ridiculous? But we do it. And maybe I would be, honestly. Maybe I would be happier. Maybe life would be easier. But at what cost? With my relationship with God. What about you? What is it for you that your mind just keeps going to, that you obsess about? Well, it might not be that thing your mind effortlessly goes to. I don't know how your mind works. It might just be on like a thousand things at once. Um, But it might be that thing that you spend much of your money and time and energy on. You know, what is it that you pour so much into and invest in, believing that it'll satisfy you, it'll complete you? Again, you have Jesus, but I need this, and I have to make this work. Well, as I kind of came to the end of this, I thought, what are the, what do the psalmists cry out for? They long to be with God. We can, we can beat ourselves up about our idols, um, and we should take them seriously, and we should see that God is better. Um, but it doesn't disqualify us from heaven or salvation. That is the beauty of God's mercy and grace. Um, and so I want to end with this prayer from Psalm 63. Um, you can read it as I pray it along, or you can close your eyes. Um, but I ask you, if you're a believer, to pray this deep down in your heart. It's a prayer just to desire to have more of God and to be satisfied by him. So let me pray. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I'll praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I'll be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Amen.